You're listening to the Ask Drone You podcast. You ask, we answer your drone questions. Whether you're here to turn your passion into profit or you simply fly for fun, we're a community of learners and teachers who aspire to achieve greatness. We are Drone You. Hey everyone, and welcome to another informative and very interesting episode of Ask Drone You. This is probably one of the most important episodes to watch all year long as Well, someone is standing up for the drone industry. In fact, they are questioning the overall FAA's authority on remote ID and the constitutional issues that it may be causing. Joining me today is Tyler Brennan from Race Day Quads, who is indeed suing the FAA, and his representing attorney, who we've had on the show before, Mr. Jonathan Rupret. Gentlemen, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's get started with you first, Tyler. Uh, Help us understand this remote ID lawsuit. Help us understand what are the goals and who are you really trying to protect in this particular lawsuit? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm sure everyone watching this has a basic idea of what our ID is and and, and everything like that. So um, it is the most restrictive, overarching um, piece of uh, UAS legislation that has uh, been put out so far. Um, our feeling is that it goes far too far uh, without overstating it there on multiple instances and uh, they didn't go about it properly uh, at that. Um, so because of that, right, I mean, th- because this is such a uh, uh, overarching big topic, we really want to make sure that it's done right and it's done in a way that uh, will allow the law-abiding, safe hobbyists that uh, have participated in the RC uh, hobby for 110, 120 years now in one of the safest sports and hobbies ever in the history of humankind to continue operating Well, I I mean, so it seems clear here, Tyler, that this is not just about protecting uh, the rights to fly for hobbyists, but also the rights for RC flyers, for uh, consumer drone pilots, for commercial drone pilots. It it seems like it kind of covers the entire gamut. It it really does, right? And that's something that people really need to understand. So, I mean, I come from a background of of flying RC Nitro models, you know, 15 years ago now. And then I did uh, drone photography and aerial surveying. And now I'm doing FPV. So I really have a wide experience with all of this. And, um, you know, people need to understand that this really affects everyone. Like little Timmy next door, when he goes and buys his air hogs, if it's over 250 grams, it's going to come with uh, one of these or he's going to have to put one of these um, modules in it to be compliant with the law. And that is, I think, uh, just a step too far. So um, because of that, we made a decision about a year and a half, almost two years ago uh, now to uh, go ahead and, and fight this and sue the FAA and not only to fight for behalf of hobbyists, but also just to make sure that uh, when we're making laws and we're doing these rules that we're going about it the right way. Uh, so we think that those are all really important things and things worth fighting for. And I think that's probably why you hired one of the most knowledgeable aviation attorneys in the industry, Mr. Jonathan Rupert. John, uh, help us understand what are the main arguments in this lawsuit against the FAA, just high level, and then we'll get into each individual one uh, because I know that there's a lot going on in this lawsuit. Yes, uh, primarily it's uh, there's constitutional violations, statutory violations, 
Uh, and that's probably the easiest way to break it down. Gotcha. And I know one of the one of the first violations that you talked about in the lawsuit itself is the GPS collection. And uh, I actually quoted a LinkedIn article that you guys sent over to me, which did a very good job of illustrating this lawsuit, saying that the suit says that this would be analogous to cell phones, full location history being tracked and stored and available to all law enforcement. Even if a person isn't being monitored, this of course typically requires a warrant. So remote ID is essentially going to aggregate our GPS information and seemingly store it for an undetermined amount of time. Can you help us understand why this is a Fourth Amendment violation? Uh, yes, and so the, the, the issue is kind of broken down into, from the Fourth Amendment aspect uh, there's there's multiple ways to look at just the Fourth Amendment. So the primary one right there is that how in the world are they thinking that the ability to make me broadcast I'm flying in my own backyard or Tyler, where the law enforcement would not have any ability to go back and see and then track the movement of that. How would they do that without a warrant? So there's this aspect of where typically when people fly, right, they're doing it on their own property, and so how do they go to that most almost super sacred from a Fourth Amendment standpoint area without a warrant and track people uh, who have not done a crime uh, and there's no suspicion of doing anything wrong? Uh, so that's one aspect. Two, there's also uh, individuals that are flying at uh, the friends fields, private parks and maybe secluded areas that are flying and they haven't done anything wrong. And there is kind of a reasonable expectation of privacy and flying in you know, the back baseball field at the park. Right. We all understand there's there's that baseball field no one really uses in the back corner. And that's why we fly there because we don't want to be bust, you know, messed with. So why is it then there is this aspect of where they think they can go about tracking those movements? Additionally, it's not just one movement, but it's an entire set of movements. Right. Because if you look at the Fourth Amendment case law, uh, there is a case called knots and it had to deal with a, a GPS as uh, a tracking device on a van. And it was kind of held back that this individual that was out in the public, that he had no reasonable expectation of privacy in that one trip, which you couldn't, you couldn't understand that. But what happens is in this day and age, when we aggregate all the data together, you end up seeing a much bigger picture. And so maybe while from a fourth amendment standpoint, one flight, you can maybe argue uh, wasn't triggering a fourth amendment, but when you're able to track that person's movement persistently over time, if I'm able to watch Paul fly at a park and then fly at this concert and he goes to this political rally, now I can start figuring out a lot about that individual based upon the totality of their movements, the whole of their movements. So that's another argument, which is the actual argument uh, came from the Maynard case. So the case that we also cited in there was uh, Jones. It was previously at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is where we presently are. And so what happened in that case was that, um, and actually it was actually even at the district court level, we never saw Jones, uh, none of the GPS tracking stuff come in regarding Jones when he was at his house. And the reason for that was that uh, previous case law, it was uh, the Caro case, K-A-R-O, uh, actually completely uh, would have precluded that. And so the district court judge actually threw the whole thing out because that's a big no-no, tracking a person without a warrant on their own property. So that's why Jones riding out on the street was the only thing adjudicated, right? You're like, why didn't they deal with this issue of GPS at the house? Because it, it, it just died right there at the district court. Um, and when it went to Ma when uh, Mannard and Jones were both up at the D uh, DC District Court of Appeals, the court 
uh, ruled that the whole of the movements is what's going on here that you're not able to track. Um, and then it later on went up to the United States Supreme Court, uh, which kind of, so there's a lot of different aspects to that, but we took that argument right from the Mannard case uh, from the district court, the DC District Court of Appeal where we currently are. So that that's another aspect there. Um, we know that the FAA is to make these things uh, very uh, visible and they're the technology in and of itself is actually far more superior than other previous forms of uh, tracking. So for example, Jones, you had to actually have the guy go, the, the law enforcement officer have to go over there and attach it to the vehicle. Uh, here, it's almost insult to injury. We have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. And then, so there's that. And uh, the, the, just as another interesting point, Carpenter, the Carpenter case, which is uh, with the cell phone, um, that's uh, the Sprint PCS band. So cell phone signals typically do a uh, plus 27 dBm. And if you're at 400 feet, okay, uh, one watt uh, uh, digital spread spectrum, 2.4 going out, you kind of overlap that with uh, the PCS band from uh, Carpenter, which was nine, uh, 1950 and everything uh, megahertz, you'll end up seeing that remote ID at 400 feet will actually transmit out at a farther range than the cell phone uh, that that Carpenter used. Just as an interesting side point there, this is a superior form of technology to track individuals. So that, that was kind of another theme that we had there as you look at it, it's better than the GPS tracker in Jones, it's better in cell phone range uh, than Carpenter. Um, and so, and, and, and part 89 is designed to transmit at maximum, uh, range. And so you look at that with, that's 2.4, one watt, um, unless they're going to come up with some weird reading and try to have it reduced. But those are the most, those are some of the fourth amendment arguments, but yeah, that's, those. Well, and so to your, to your point regarding those previous, uh, case law, you, you stated in one of your articles on your website, which by the way, you do a phenomenal job of keeping us informed on what's going on, but you said that it was actually noted that remote ID was part of some sort of mass surveillance, uh, program by the FAA. Am I, am I reading that correctly? In the proposal, uh, yes. So the, the original network identification, which was which was proposed, you and I saw what was done in the the the, the face, the, the fake, I would say half of the story uh, that was put into the Federal Register and that we all commented on. We thought we were commenting on, you know, the whole thing when in reality what was going on is during that entire uh, room, the, the comment period, okay, the FAA was entering into eight memorandums of understanding with multiple companies, uh, and they met privately. There was at least five instances that they met. Um, so this is after the final, the the, initial, the the NPRM was published. They're meeting with these people, uh, like Airbus, Airmap, and they gave in that secret meeting the concept of use document, which outlined the true intentions of network ID. And the whole idea was that you would take all these unmanned aircraft service suppliers and they would downstream all the data to the FAA flight information management system, the FIMS. Then they would allow uh, law enforcement, so DOD, DHS, uh, DOD, FBI, maybe state and local, to all have access to that. And uh, it would also allow them to uh, uh, watch real-time feeds of individuals as well as go back and uh, look historically into the archives of what was going on. And after the comment period was closed, uh, UTM ConOps version two came out and you read in there, that's 
that's connected in with the flight information management system. So you kind of look at, you're thinking this, and it's like they put this out and realize it's a whole entire setup here. And it talks in there about they're planning on archiving and searching this data and going back in time and looking for regulatory violations. And that's that comes out. Um, so that was all happening during the uh, rulemaking process. And uh, in addition to even that remote identification cohort, uh, multiple people reached out to the FAA about that saying, hey, is this going to influence the rulemaking? Because how in the world are you doing a rem network ID remote identification kind of cohort while the rulemaking is going on and somehow it's not going to affect, right? You kind of like, that doesn't make sense, right? And then the FAA puts out an email and I believe the email is in uh, one of the addendums. Uh, it's one of them, right? Where they, they, they said, I don't even want to read it. Yeah, no, I've got addendum C here uh, regarding the cohorts as a whole. But it's a very interesting analogy when you say that, like, we thought that we were commenting on the entire NPRM. Meanwhile, there's regulatory violations by the FAA in how they're actually presenting remote ID as a whole and working kind of behind the scenes on remote ID as a whole, not including, or actually as well as including secret uh, FBI demonstrations that were going on as recently as October of 2020. But before we get there, John, because there's a lot going on here, you mentioned something in your initial statement that I think is absolutely crucial. I think we have to point it out because we've brought up this question here on the show as well, which is really regarding navigable airspace. You know, you said that if a kid's in their backyard and they're kind of flying below the trees, this is, you know, quote unquote, sacred space or a privacy space. And if I understand uh, the lawsuit here, you are also claiming that backyards or below tree lines do not count as navigable airspace. And here at DroneU, we have tried to get the FAA to answer this question time and time again. And if I understand the lawsuit properly, you're saying that the FAA in addition to the other constitutional violations of mass surveillance, et cetera, of this lawsuit, you're also saying, hey, look, we need to define what is navigable airspace because the FAA is, is intentionally ignoring this. And in the, at the end of the day, do they really even have the federal authority to regulate that airspace? Uh, right, I mean, so, during the comment period, there were uh, multiple individuals that alleged this issue of that. How in the world are you there from? So kind of going back to the two points, there's a constitutional issue and there's a, there's a statutory issue. One, Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate traffic. And so what's happening here is when you get down so low, there's a big question as to the constitutional uh, uh, authority justification for the FAA going down because their, their, their authority to go down is only as strong as the constitution allows them. So assuming they get past that, which they never commented on, uh, second one is uh, statutorily wise, uh, they're required to, uh, they're regulating this navigable airspace. And navigable airspace is defined by the minimum safe altitude prescribed by regulation. The FAA never prescribed a minimum, minimum safe altitude for drones. They only did this maximum, left it silent, and then now they're in the wording of part 89, they did not even use the term navigable airspace. It would have been nice if they would have actually. Um, they chose the term airspace of the United States. Airspace of the United States is the most broadest term. And that term was used specifically only in regards to the federal government, not the FAA. 
in the statutes. So it's, an, it's a key important point. They kind of went and took a really broad term and borrowed it from something that didn't apply to them and took it and applied, baked it into the part 89. And then when multiple people brought this all up in the comments, they basically did a MC hammer and were like, can't touch it. And they completely just ignored it. So one, there, there, there's just a failure to actually respond to substantive arguments here, right? So baked into this is we're raising some serious issues here, but there's just a failure to actually respond. So we don't actually even in our brief get into the get into discussing that because step one, the FAA actually never said anything in that in the final rule in response to the significant comments saying that they were without constitutional authority and they were without statutory authority to actually regulate this below navigable airspace in people's backyard. So it's not like we're challenging it. We're saying the FAA failed to actually explain the failure to explain argument that they never said anything, that they're just trying to get away with grabbing as much territory as possible without actually dealing with the hard issues. It's interesting to note when you look through all the arguments, it was when we went through all this, and I'm so thankful that we got to work on this for a long time, is that a lot of the arguments that we did were basically the needles not in the haystack. So we didn't really go after any of the arguments of things that the FAA addressed in the comments. It's all the things that people brought up in the 53,000 comments that they just completely did not even answer. Uh, they actually did not answer a lot of comments that were, there were a lot of significant issues that they completely ignored and we chose the best ones that we wow. thought at this time. So. Well, I think you guys did a phenomenal job. I mean, both of you, and I think a lot of people uh, have to thank you, John, and you, Tyler, as well. Uh, at race day quads and I know at the end of the show we'll get to how drone pilots can support your guys' efforts because we would like to support them as well but John going back to your comment regarding you know we all thought that we were commenting on the NPRM and it wasn't really the complete NPRM it really wasn't the complete uh, roadmap for remote ID and for what they were truly doing I know in your legal arguments uh, you stated that it's an illegal rulemaking process such as adjudicating comments and the new rule not being a logical outgrowth of comments. And, and I quote, I believe this is from your site, there were all sorts of shocking things that happened behind the scenes with this rulemaking, such as multiple secret meetings the FAA had with outside parties, which were intentionally kept out of the public eye and were never fully disclosed on the record. All FAA hidden meetings with private industry as T-Mobile, AirMap, and Amazon, as well as the massive government surveillance plan that was exposed. Uh, DHS and the FAA tried to keep all sorts of stuff hidden, albeit you guys had obtained the documents, also including ex parte events such as the secret FBI demonstration, which happened in October of last year. So help us understand how was it an illegal rulemaking process, maybe in layman's terms, because I feel like a lot of people are going to be like, wow, this is a really complex lawsuit because there's so many different points they're hitting here. But help us understand how is it an illegal rulemaking process? Hey, great question. So in regards to uh, the Administrative Procedures Act, we're supposed to be given notice about what's going on. And what happened there is that the true nature of what was going on with the network identification was concealed intentionally because Americans weren't, weren't gonna have any of that if everybody was gonna be told that all of the information of your drone and your ground controller 
is streaming right over the internet that you have to pay for at one right at one hertz every second, and it's going to this it's going to this database that then is going to be able to be queried by the uh, government and logged and archived and be able to be able to be searched. We were never told that. So one, that was a notice. We never were given notice. Uh, so and then, why did things change? Why was there a an abandonment? of network identification after it was originally proposed. And they, then they went to this uh, broadcast module ID and this uh, uh, like standard and broadcast module ID. Why'd they abandon limited? Why did they abandon network? What was the catalyst for all of that? And they don't really clearly explain all that stuff other than, oh, it happened because of the remote identification cohort meetings, which when you look at the emails, from the Department of Justice, the FAA is still currently claiming that they somehow never influenced the remote identification rulemaking team, which is weird because apparently the left hand that was communicating with the DOJ in that email wasn't talking to the right hand or could have just read the uh, final rule that said that because of those secret meetings, they actually changed uh, the final rule. So not, not only was it that there was there's a there's a notice violation here. There's a commentary violation here. So could it have been that network ID could have actually been a uh, viable solution for certain types of technologies? Could it have been that Paul could have woken up one Saturday morning, had a sip of coffee and been like, oh, wait, I see right here. You can fix this. This right here. Yeah, I know how to do that. Yeah, just here you go. You were precluded from the, the ability to comment on that information because the FAA hit it, right? So we have a notice violation. You have a, you can't even comment on it. And then the FAA goes and tries to like somehow anticipatory think about what things people might even uh, deal with. And then they completely abandon that. They do that also with the, the E911 type of stuff right there, where you have to have the ground control station, right? It's got to be, was it like 15 feet plus or minus 15 feet? It's super accurate. Okay. Um, that was never proposed and nobody commented on it. And then they're trying to like address these FCC related issues by, especially with BMID, um, the BMID issue that was never proposed either. And they're like, oh, we're gonna try to fix it because of like FCC regs, that'll be addressed. And it's like, well, that's a big safety issue because how does the FAA know that they addressed everything? One of the reasons for commenting is also to be able to identify all the legal and their safety technological issues. Uh, right. Because it's so arrogant to be like, oh, yeah, we, we got it. Yeah, we fixed it. You know, you're like, um, what? How do you know you fixed it? You don't. Well, and, you know, to your point regarding uh, the FAA hiding some of these items in the email from Case uh, and Ross, U.S. Department of Justice, he says, we have consulted with the FAA and do not believe that any of these items need to be included in the administrative record all the items identified are either already included or the on the record, or they are unrelated to the FAA's consideration of the rule that is subject to challenge in this case, which Elizabeth responded, uh, I realize that you are simply relying on what the FAA has told you. So for our purposes of further engaging them, I would like to provide some more information as to our position. But in general, it is our understanding that the administrative record is neither limited to nor the same as the information contained to the public docket 
for the rule. Rather, it includes all documents and materials directly or indirectly considered by agency decision makers. With that in mind, we have a hard time accepting the FAA's claims set forth in your response below, but specifically that the request for information was specifically for input from manned aviators on UAS remote ID. The FAA requested this information during the time it was promulgating the final rule, and we are hard pressed to believe that a request for information on remote ID was unrelated to the rule on remote ID and is no way considered by FAA individuals making decisions on the remote identification ruling. She continues to say that Jay Merkel was the one on 10-22-20 making the request from the DAC. Isn't he the FAA UAS executive leadership team? Isn't he an FAA decision maker slash influencer? Can he influence the rulemaking through his many interactions with FAA leadership and indirectly relaying the information? Didn't he interact with rulemaking team members. I mean, I think it's an important point that you bring up, John. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have uh, a copy of his signature um, signing off on the final rule. So seems like he's making decisions. After, for sure. That's after uh, that DAC, com you know, like, hey, DAC, why don't you like, uh, why don't you give us some more info here? It's like, how is this not ex parte? Like, are we just running around, like, doing whatever here? Um, you know, it's just, it's it, so, now what's interesting is also if you read back, now, now the regulations changed a couple times within the last year, but during that time frame, uh, 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 14 CFR 5.19 was currently in effect. It's 5.5 now, if anybody's wanting to know, like, why it's different now. But the substance of the guts of 519 made it into 5.5, if you go read it. And it's basically like, if anything substantive comes out regarding this rulemaking, you should, you should throw it back out on the record. And some of these substantive points, you should throw it back out there as a, uh, a, a supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking. And, and, and you don't do switcheroos. You don't go, hey, we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna do altimeter driven uh, altitude. Okay, we're gonna do that guys. Oh, wait, wait, nah. GPS, we're going to do GPS. Oh, by the way, we're not going to do like, you know, like 150 feet. We're going to do like plus or minus 15. Everybody's like, what? That's crazy. Um, that is a technological switcheroo, and it is to a, an extremely high level of accuracy that the Department of Defense, their satellite constellation system does not even provide that. So you can't even say somehow like, you know, maybe they're going to switch it out to GPS. You know, you can, you can see somebody maybe arguing like, eh, different, you know, reasonable minds will differ on that. But what's going to be interesting is you're not going to go and, yeah, they're going to go GPS. But you know what? They're going to go even more restrictive, way more than what the GPS is already being, you know, provided with with the Department of Defense. So we're going to have to buy new equipment. No one said that. Nobody was told that. that. It was a complete out of nowhere. That was a switcheroo. It wasn't a logical outgrowth of the uh, NPRM. They just made up. Made, just, pops it out. And so uh, that's that's a big problem right there. Um, additionally, um, there was kind of some understanding there, I guess, well, ignorantly, and this is a primary reason why you do notice and comment so people can comment on the rulemaking so you don't look um, unwise, uh, is that the FCC regulations for the E911 regulations, that's why I guess they're trying to get this, like, you have your phone and then the FCC, I mean, that the FCC requirements to the carriers have to have this highly accurate Z-axis data 
And but somehow they missed the part where that you're going to have your ground control station is somehow going to have to have access to this really highly accurate altitude, the Z-axis data from the cellular carriers. And by regulation, they're precluded from using that for anything other than 911 purposes, except for with express authorization or required by law. So the carrier's hands are tied and somehow FAA, I guess, thought, yeah, they'll have the capability and and uh, we'll pull it and you can have it on your phone and it'll be like integrated and then it'll broadcast out and everybody will be fine. So now uh, they're kind of stuck in a rock in a hard place because how is anybody going to be able to actually practically comply with that, seeing that your your regular DOD stuff that you're dealing with right now isn't as good right there then and out of the box. You're going to have to do some more things, right? So that's why you should do notice and comment. That's why it wasn't a logical outgrowth. And furthermore, why is it now that, you know, you're dealing with like ASTM, uh, the remote identification uh, working group over there? Why are they uh, working with the FAA in regards to trying to change that? Isn't that kind of evidence that they botched it up to begin with? And it's like, why don't you admit it? But they're kind of stuck in a really nasty hot spot because it's like, what? Okay, you're going to file something in the uh, Federal Register um, that you're going to change it or you're just going to change it. Right. Oh, you're going to change it, admitting we're right. Or you're going to do what? Another notice and comment admitting we're right. They, they got a really nasty situation there because they just totally like did this. They just unilaterally ambushed us. I mean, I think it's not only evidence of doing it uh, botched, as you said the first time, but I think it's also evidence of a few other things. And one of which is utilizing ASTM and groups like the DAC, which are, as we all know, very nepotistic as far as who they select to be on those groups, as we've highlighted numerous times, that those pe- most of those people have an extreme conflict of interest for even being on the DAC or the ASTM. But in addition to that, it also seems evidence of what a lot of people have said speculatively, which is that remote ID is really all about autonomous enforcement and it's all about surveillance. And you know, to that point, if I understand one of the other uh, allegations in the lawsuit, you're stating that the concept of FRIAS creates a forced association with private due collection organizations to exercise the privileges of flying in public airspace which is a first amendment violation in itself yeah we we the free issue right there is a really interesting issue because um one you have you have an you have a bunch of individuals (laughs) i'm trying trying to figure out how to go about answering this without getting into all of the details because we said some stuff and there was a lot of uh things we left out uh, let's just say um, but one one big just complete obvious thing there is that you have to be a uh, dues paying member to go to the fields. So you're forced to, you're forced to pay and associate with these places. And why would, for for example, with an educational institution, why would they ever allow you to come there and fly there and potentially hurt some of their patrons? Right. As their students or right. You, you have an issue there just from a liability standpoint. So where do you go to actually go and fly these things? Don't you don't can't you fly in your own backyard? Doesn't that make sense that you could fly these in your own backyard? Because everybody in your own backyard, you would know who's there. They've assumed the risk. There is no members of the general public that the FAA uses always as a justification to try to grab more regulatory authority. There's no airplanes flying there. Paul does not live at an airport. Paul does not live at a military base. Paul does not live at a prison. He doesn't live at the, you know, all the typical justifications of like, we need a remote ID because the bad guys. It's like, well, 
typically your backyard is not where the bad guys want to attack the chemical plants. Like we don't live there. So there, there's this interesting aspect where they kind of apply this broad blanket remote ID applies everywhere. You're precluded from applying for your own home. Yet strangely, uh, the, um, CBOs and educational institutions could still apply for, uh, that free designation at those locations. And it's weird because when people actually made the comment, like, why can't I do that? Then it, it would undermine things. So one, you got, we have a bunch of other substantive issues and kind of, as you look at all the arguments, there's a substantive argument. And then across the board, there's a failure to respond. It's a double dip art. Every, every argument, there's two aspects to it, the substantive and the, you didn't answer it. We, somebody brought it up. You didn't answer it. You should have answered it. And you, you go to like, look at other, um, rulemakings from other agencies that are a little bit more on the ball and they'll specifically address it. Go look at some of these other ones and look up like uh fourth amendment, Carpenter, Jones. These things are just like devoid. You don't even go control F's uh, a bunch of these words. They just don't even show up Uh due process, equal protection. You know, you'll have words like constitutional, like, wow, that was specific and that's it. It'll be constitutional protections. And then, uh, so we, we have all those substantive arguments. There's failure to respond specifically regarding the FRIAs. The FAA was saying that allowing, uh, eligibility for free, the application for FRIAs to be expanded to people's backyards would undermine, uh, how this, this whole rulemaking, this remote identification construct, uh, there was no reasoning explained with that. So it was arbitrary and capricious because it was an answer. Like some of the things the FAA chose to not even answer. It's just silence. There's nothing there. Like I said, needles that were not in the haystacks that then they never touched. And then there is they would address it, but merely conclusory statements with no reasoning. And that's that's those are the examples for that one specifically by when they use the word undermine. Okay, why does it undermine? Nothing. Silence. Yeah, very good question. And I'm, so in regards to kind of like the double dip uh, legal allegations as far as, you know, one uh, substantive and then, you know, them not answering these things. If we if we take that and then we kind of take a lot of the legal arguments that we've talked about as far as navigable airspace, let's let's talk about Tyler and his kid. They fly in their backyard. You know, is it really navigable airspace? Is it really the FAA's authority? And on top of that, the FAA is saying blades of grass to the heavens. That's us. Well, I don't think that's that's quite true. At the same point, if that Tyler and his kid were to go fly in the backyard, not only is, you know, a, a question of navigable airspace, but the FAA is also going to record the data from the drone and the remote, which is within, you know, an operator's use of handheld controllers is always, you know, in their hand because they have to be able to take over emergency control. But that said, if we take that and we take remote ID and now we're data logging on him and his child, and we are, you know, adding that into a database that can essentially be archived and be available at any time. I mean, it seems like this is a, a ladder of constitutional violations, you know, from the from the overreaching airspace to the data logging to, you know, uh, even, you know, we're not even touching the kid here, the, the kid aspect of it. Right. Yeah. So um, so w network was originally designed to go over cellular to the flight information management system here with, with standard and broadcast module ID. It's just whatever's within radio line of sight of the 2.4 gigahertz and just like 
because what what happens here is everyone goes like so that so you're not having this like completely massive infrastructure some people might argue that like you would have to cellular and then you go but hold on a second um don't all the law enforcement guys have phones that receive bluetooth and wi-fi and their laptops and their cars isn't as trivial as literally just like installing an app and it just persistently listens and logs everything. So isn't there actually a network everywhere? And you look at, uh, you look at um, the websites that log all the ADSB uh, transmissions. Um, you actually have to pay money to do that. You have to pay money to do that. This is going to be as simple as like, you got a phone, install it for free. Yeah, you, everybody in our law enforcement uh, agency, we got this, you know, like, what, Axon or somebody, somebody's going to come out with this in a second. Not to mention, who knows what else is going on there regarding um, big tech working with uh, the government. I mean, look at like Ring and Linksys and Netgear. Like you have all of these 2.4 receivers everywhere, right? So there's a, there's a big is, uh, issue here of how this information can start being received and then aggregated. And now it's actually worse than before because you can't really detect what's going on um, until somebody blows the whistle. Because with the, with, the, with the cell phones, you could have some guy at a cellular company being like, does everybody know what's going on here? They, that thing's got all this data. And you, then we find out about it, right? Or the um, you, you can have that. But this is just going where... Law enforcement can easily just grab it, and now it's on their side, and you're in a database, just like the license plate readers and all that stuff. And I know people go, oh, license plate readers, you're out in public. I, I got it. That's an interesting argument. You know, you got cameras that are on street corners. They have a certain field of view. There's a certain amount of square area, right? Okay, that you calculate the square feet. You put so many of those around. But the problem is, is once you go 400 feet, one watt digital spread spectrum, okay, Plus three, uh, plus thirty dBm, and you calculate that. Um, that's like one. Uh, assuming a sensor uh, 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 it's doing at negative one hundred and ten dBm, you're doing out like one point nine uh, miles on a radius. And I'm like that, 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 that. When you quantitatively compare the square footage of coverage of remote ID to like a license plate reader or something on a street corner, you go like, it's massively disproportional. A remote ID is far more broadcasting. Like it's very broadcasty. It's designed to be, it's in the name guys. <laughs> so, you know, to your point about the infrastructure of broadcast being able to work, um, you said something, you know, that like, you know, the police have, you know, laptops where they can read different Wi-Fi frequencies and whatnot. But I mean, if you think about someone like Xfinity, Comcast, who gets involved, who's turned all of their routers to have a public based network off of your private router that you're paying for, what if they turn that into a, a spectrum analyzer and now they can see all of these drones over broadcast ID and the government is paying them to essentially aggregate that information, store it and archive it. And it makes so much sense why you utilize incited Carpenter v. United States to assert that remote ID is actually more intrusive than technology that's already recognized as unconstitutional. And you said that the notion is that while a cell phone is within an arm's reach, most of the time, an operator's use of handheld controllers is within their the arm's reach all of the time. So it seems like once again, this network ID, uh, you know, that was lost, broadcast ID with the right infrastructure, whether it's Comcast, whether it's the Verizon network that powers 
these law enforcement laptops and it's their cellular emergency network. And then it makes you wonder, well, how come T-Mobile and Verizon are in these hidden FAA meetings regarding remote ID? Huh, it's starting to make a lot of sense now, right? And so then you think about, this is just a an uh, egregious, absolutely egregious constitutional violation of American citizens' rights as far as data being aggregated. And I mean, again, we're not even touching the aspect of, you know, the example of Tyler and his kid, if you have one, uh, being a minor, you know, and how does that play into the entire thing? So, you know, with all of these arguments, uh, John, let me ask you, I mean, there's there's a lot here as far as Fourth Amendment violations, First Amendment violations, secret meetings, and, uh, you know, uh, what is it called? Uh, statutory breaches as far as the regulations were concerned. I'm not sure I'm quoting that accurately. But with all of these breaches of law, what do you expect this lawsuit to bring about? Do you expect it to essentially remove remote ID as a whole? Or I guess, what's the goal? Yeah, great question. Um, it, it, that that's uh, directly related to uh, which of or how many of the arguments that the court chooses to go with. Um, so, for example, if typically what's going to happen under the constitutional avoidance doctrine, uh, courts don't rule on constitutional issues if they can get rid of the case on a statutory grounds, right? And if they can get rid of it on a statutory or they can get rid of it on an arbitrary capricious grounds, they're going to do that before they get onto a statutory grounds. And so there's this aspect where they're going to look at this and be like, wait a second here, there's a lot of substantive legal issues here. However, um, let's hold off on adjudicating whether that the FA has the ability to regulate the lower portions of the sky. Um, and keep in mind here, you're talking about the court saying that. What's going to be really beneficial here is that the Department of Justice, was it October the 3rd or 4th, their brief is uh, is due. And in that, it's going to be really interesting to see how affirmatively they assert jurisdiction over the blades of grass. So one, the practical benefit to that, though, um, keep in mind, though, there, there's a the benefit to that to the drone community in the sense that if you're having an out of control local government that is trying to regulate drones, you can potentially maybe want to argue that, that look, hold off, you might want to stop doing that because the Department of Justice representing the FAA is actually claiming this. So there's a benefit to just what they say going forward here, which is what they should have originally done in the final rule. So we're kind of fishing that out of them by saying, you failed to respond to this. We're not actually directly challenging this at the moment. Uh, you just failed to respond to it. And these are actually substantive issues because if they are true, the FAA has no jurisdiction, right? So it's not, we're, we're, we're not, we're using it not for the purposes of challenging the jurisdiction, but for proving that that comment was a significant comment. It wasn't like, yo, you missed the comment. You got a comma over here and you did the R or not it's, and you should have had a comma, right? Those are, those are not significant substantive arguments. Uh, when, when we bring up, there's a statutory and a constitutional issue that, that if true, uh, then FAA has no jurisdiction, then they should have responded. So it's really going to more to the significance of the comment. I kind of want to be clear with that there, other than we're trying to challenge it and blow that all up. We're like, no, 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 let the FAA say that. But if it's true, you know, and then the court will see that and be like, yeah, um, FAA, most likely what I think what will happen is that the court will look at it and be like, uh, there are numerous um, constitutional statutory issues here that the FAA did not address, they merely ignored, 
and provide no, they, they did not provide any reasoning. And so because of that, they're going to re, uh, strike down the rulemaking and then send it back to the FAA for further rulemaking and to further explain that. So then you might have another NPRM come out, uh, potentially maybe the same, but with more explanation, or they might change it based upon some of the things they've seen in the brief going, yeah, I don't know if we want to want to do that tracking in people's backyards. I think we're going to lose that. We might want to like edit that one out and uh, change up the, uh, the next batch. So that's what I think almost likely will happen is it'll just uh, be struck down and sent back to the FAA to do a further, a, a better job and further explain everything. Cause look at it. I mean, how much 107 was like what 600 and something pages. And this thing's like 400 or something. You're like, there's a lot of stuff that was just not in there. Like, go look at, just look up Forth and Carpenter and Jones and, and even go into the significance of the comments. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can say on that because certain comments kind of like vaguely, maybe ambiguously argued stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to use that comment. But the comments we picked, if you look in, uh, in addendum uh, A, um, I believe we put every comment we used in there. We had multiple attorneys were doing comments and they were explicitly stating the violation. So the FAA was like beyond, um, uh, they, they were completely on notice. You had one attorney that was arguing the uh, United States v. Lopez case that was applying, that was basically dealing with Article 1, Section 8 and Commerce Clause and the power of the federal government. I'm like, the guy's citing the case and then the three points in the case he goes through and argues all three points of the case as to why we're like it's like guys you're really on notice about this uh you have multiple attorney um uh, you have, yeah how many attorneys and people were commenting on jones carpenter uh riley they all comment on those i mean look at riley jones or carpenter control f that in the in the comments and be like did the i mean and, and then go over into uh what the faa said i mean cosby the cosby case like was mentioned over 50 times in comments like 50 times and then the is like, don't touch this. Yeah, you know, they're just like, I mean, it's like. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it makes you wonder if them not bringing these things up, they're trying to avoid the issue as a whole because maybe they A, don't know, or B, they don't have the, uh, they don't want to address it because it's kind of like this theme that we see in government where we'll just keep pressing on, pressing on, pressing on. And, and doing these things uh, essentially that are typically outside of our authority, but until someone sues us, then we don't have to really address it. So, but if it, let, well, let me make sure that I understand something that you just said. So as far as these changes and if maybe they were to repost the NPRM, does this essentially mean that this case could delay remote ID as a rollout and that they would have to essentially come out with more information or could this essentially uh, absolutely kill the remote ID in, in whole because there's just too many violations that have been proven in previous case law? Uh, yeah, I think it's most likely going to have to be completely killed across the board because I don't know how you could leave it in place and send it back to the FAA to kind of like do a quick rework and then kind of like get it through comments and then have it issued. 
Um, I mean, I mean typically- it really makes you wonder if the FAA is like even capable of coming out with uh, a remote ID because this was supposed to support UTM and advanced operations. And yet, as Tyler said in the beginning of the show, this is statistically the safest hobby that's really out there. I mean, I have a higher propensity of burning myself with a hot glue gun during my sewing class than I do crashing my drone, frankly, at least statistically speaking. So it really makes you wonder if the FAA is even capable here. Uh, well, they, they, they're, yeah, there was, there was so much we wanted, we ran out of space and then we ran out of space and then we had to ask the court for an extra thousand words because we had so much to say. It was, there's just, there's a lot to say on the whole thing. I mean, just getting into, um, the, the lack of data. I mean, that's kind of disturbing. So, uh, do you have the emails handy by any chance? Uh, I do have addendum A, I believe. Right, well, do you have uh, not the not the comments, but the emails from the DOJ? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Read, read the last one from the the DOJ. I think it's the last and the answer to the last question. It should be the last. Read that out loud. That that should make everybody's eyebrows go up when everybody says it's about safety. Uh, is this from Elizabeth or this is from DOJ? Yeah, Kason. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Below our responses to reactions. Um, boom, boom, boom. Okay. The safety Holy risk. Cow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The FAA did not consider the information in the assessment because the assessment was not finalized until after publication of the final rule. The assessment itself was also based entirely on a safety evaluation of the final rule itself. So the safety risk assessment could not have been considered in drafting the final rule. So what came first, the safety or the rulemaking? Right? That's very, How, very good so there's, there's an interesting argument there because then the rulemaking was not safe. I'm, I'm being very clear with that terminology there. I'm trying to be very precise. It was not safe. I'm not saying it was unsafe. I'm saying it was not safe. The determination of safety, the final risk acceptance did not even happen until after the final rule uh, came out. So rulemaking came first. Then the safety risk acceptance process started, uh, well, from my estimation, sometime in March and April of uh, 2020. And then the final acceptance happened after the final rule came out. So you, when everybody says it's for safety, you go, it's actually not for safety. It's purely for security. And we need to just call it for what it is because they're trying to dress up a security rulemaking and a safety tuxedo. But in reality, it's like, guys, look at it. It's, it's only about security because they're trying to do it as almost like a, a to, to, to evade a criticism by courts or outsiders the members of the public because it's safety related and nobody really wants to kind of like do something and criticize something that could end up leading to somebody's death right from a safety aspect and so it's a way to ward off uh scrutiny by just calling it a safety one but in reality it's only security we also cite an internal uh powerpoint presentation from the faa that was done during those meetings and in there, they're they're talking that this is about security. It's it, it, pri- privately how the FAA is doing it 
It's a security, which I think they would be far more honest in their secret meetings, right? Then, you know, right? Like, right? I think, that's a, I think that's a huge bombshell because so many people have said remote ID is not about safety. It's about security. It's about, it's, it looks like, and many people have said this, that remote ID looks like it was literally written by DHS or DOD and not by the FAA because you can actually put part 107 into Jarvis, which is an AI-based uh, author, literally, and you can break down statistically how sentences were written and come up with common themes about how they were written. And then if you look at remote ID, it doesn't match the themes at all. And so, I mean, I, I think that you just proved something that we have all been thinking intuitively, but really didn't have the proof. And the fact that you guys got that PowerPoint, John, thank you. Every drone pilot thanks you. Yeah, the, so, so um, I suggest everybody goes and looks through all this stuff because do you know how all this stuff came out? Okay, Please so- elaborate. We were gonna dump it out eventually, you know. We started dumping it on the internet, and Tyler, Tyler's website has a bunch of stuff. So, Tyler, what's the best website that, to get all those FOIAs on? Well, the best website is gonna be the the GoFundMe page. That's where we've been posting all of it on the Save. If you just look up Save FPV or, or Race A Quads VFAA GoFundMe, that's where we're posting a lot of it. There's also a page with even a ton of information on the race day quads page if you scroll the very bottom and then jonathan has even more information than both of those combined on uh on his uh website as well so thanks for the plug there john that. <laughs> so guys, I'm going to put all of these links in the show notes so that they can have them. I'm, and by the way, everyone listening, we're also going to have the very first link is going to be where you can donate to support this legal fight and uh, have the FAA do what they're supposed to do, which is be transparent and also uh, follow the existing federal laws. Uh, but also I'm going to have the article on race day quads, FAA legal battle to save FPV. I'm going to also link the LinkedIn article. And then John, I'm going to link your website multiple times, but the first link is going to be the race day quads, LLC versus FAA lawsuit, challenging drone remote identification regulations. Because ladies and gentlemen, if you go to John Rupert's website, uh, it, it's mind boggling how much data they have mined to prove uh, that drone pilots are really being raked over the coals here and you've got to read it i mean john i'm not gonna lie i discovered your website earlier this week that's why i sent you that email and i was like holy <laughs> like there is so much here on remote id on the existing lawsuits on on the existing uh litigation throughout the industry it's just amazing yeah i love investigating things uh i love it and so um what what's interesting is like the stuff we uncovered in this situation are there's just so many like infuriating things. Like, do you have the email from Tyler uh, 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 that we put in the addendum? Did you get that one? That one's really great. So you do the FBI secret demo, right? Yeah. And so you go to the FBI secret demo, right? You're like, oh, it's like FBI, uh, right? It's like security related. So I got it. Okay. So the FA wants to make sure all the federal security partners are happy with this. Got it. However, please explain to me how state and local first responders and uh, law enforcement, and everything got to go as well. And you're like, that's not really like, you know, and you're like, okay. I mean, but you know, maybe, maybe I can see it. Maybe, maybe, I don't how, know. How, how did the PR drama queens of drone responders end up well, there too? Yeah. Well, so what's strange is NFL security, Pierce Aerospace, which is a remote ID company and drone responders 
they all got to go. And this is all published after the fact. Um, here's a fun thing. Pull the document who published that in the docket. Okay. And, and if you look at the author of that Adobe, it's Catherine Inman, one of the FAA attorneys. Okay. That document we obtained via FOIA. The document that was put on the record by the FAA attorney did not include everything. Look that that docket that docket there. Read the last, second to last page of that docket. What does it say right there at the? the go to the bottom. Say okay. doesn't it say Q and A session? Uh, this is before or after the task order. Uh, if you go to no, it's uh, uh before the task order. Um, should be at the bottom. Should be like Q and A session. Oh, 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 recording restaurant. I'm not. Right, so they, do the, they do the secret FBI demo. And yeah. then uh, the FAA is like disclosing this out there, kind of looking like they're trying to comply. The disclosure is carefully chosen by an FAA attorney, Catherine Inman. And they put a couple pages in there to disclose this, but they don't put that one page in there, which is what we discovered via public records, which said that the FAA was doing a Q&A session with individuals. This is during the comment period. Nobody knows about what, you know, these people are getting access to information and what was going on, what was being said, who was there, what, what was being said by the FAA, why was all that going on? And, but here, okay, so now you're like, John, you're a little crazy now, okay. But read, what does Steve say? What does Steve say in the email when Tyler emails the UAS help desk? Because on the FAA Docket, they're like, oh, if you have any questions about the demo, please email us at uashelp.gov. Yeah. And you know what? Vince Tyler emails them. And what does UAS Help say? Go ahead. What is, Tyler, I, go I, ahead. I don't remember. It's like right there. I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember off the top of my head, but. <laughs> <laughs> hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm just trying to go through. Read faster, Paul. What's like, that, Tyler? Re read faster. I am trying, like, trying. <laughs> I need to, like, those like 80s shows. like to be continued. I need to have like a little to be continued, you know, like waiting, like next episode of Joan, you find out what was said, you know, yeah, change right. the world, you know, yeah, luckily, like, luckily this is not, uh, the secrets of Skinwalker Ranch. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but in item 15, the email Tyler Brennan submitted to UAS help at FAA.gov and the response sent by the FAA on 10, 17, 20, regarding remote ID demo and Kaysen Ross responded this item is unrelated to the FAA's consideration of the challenge rule yet there's a question and answer period during the FBI demo that kind of seems like a wait, direct wait, contradiction wait, wait, wait. so that, that was the DOD and uh, the DOJ email there's a there's an email we put Tyler's email and the FAA's response in there it's infuriating it basically was saying that um, it's either in B, addendum B or, or, or Charlie. Um, and in there, so Tyler's like, I'd like to find out more about what happened, uh, the FBI demo, because the FAA docket entry says, if you have questions, email us, right? So Tyler emails them. And then Steve uh, at the, I, I believe it was Steve, um, somebody over at UAS Help. Uh, emails back basically saying, hey, we can't comment on it during the rulemaking process. It wouldn't be fair. During the Q&A session, you know, you're like, really? Wait, so Tyler doesn't get Q&A, but the people that get to go to the FBI demo get Q&A. You see how this is a very insincere, a disingenuous, uh, in, you know, not accurate, less than accurate. Yeah. Uh, a way of presenting themselves where they're like, we're open and transparent. No, they're not. Um, there, there's an 
perspective where they look that way, but you actually call them out on it or try to avail yourself of the options. I mean, I literally just the other day, right, Tyler, you, you're my witness on that. There's something trying to happen. And I was like, Hey, I'm trying to do something with FA. And then, Oh no, 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 not for you, John. And I'm like, <laughs> I figured you were going to like be all like, Oh yeah. Anybody can join. Oh, I want to join. No, you can't join John. We're just limiting it. Like, no, we don't need any more people. It's like, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think they, they wonder about lawyers, you know, when their mouths are uh, moving and everybody's lying, you know, but it's like guys like FA, but anyways. Um, so we, we have, if you look in the addendums, that's pretty much where we outline a lot of the stuff that uh, the unmanned aircraft pilot program, uh, phase two with New York test site, we, we put some task orders in there and in there they were demoing a remote identification. So in addition to the cohort, in addition to the FBI uh, demos, you also had UPP uh, phase two testing New York test site and with uh, 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 maps right down there with Virginia Tech. Um, I, I don't know what Virginia Tech was doing. I don't ha- I didn't have their, their contract, but we have their MOU, the task order, where uh, FAA actually paid the New York test site to test out remote identification, post comment period, none of that was disclosed. You don't know about it. I don't know about it. Nobody knows about it. And so in there, it actually included some stuff in regards to how remote identification be kind of interacting with law enforcement. And why, why wasn't that disclosed as to uh, what was going on? What was being disclosed? What was going on to be tested there? You know, there's an overall pattern of they put certain things on the record. Like if you go to my website, I have a, I have two graphics. And if you look at them, one is all the stuff on the record the FA put out, all the stuff off the record. The really substantive stuff was all off the record. The multiple programs where the FAA is paying people to actually test out remote ID during all of this, you know. And so uh, we were not available to any of that. And somehow that, at least in some capacity, played into um, the final rule that came out. And it's strange because the FAA is still denying that some of this stuff even applied to the remote identification rulemaking team, which is just strange because it's just like, well, I mean, you got Jay mixed up in all this. You have multiple executives. I mean, look at the minutes. The, me- the meeting minutes that we obtained show that in the fifth meeting, there was an FAA executive that was doing a Q&A session. What? How come Tyler didn't, Paul, why didn't you get that? Where did you get that treatment? Tyler didn't get that treatment. I didn't get that treatment. Yeah, yeah it's selectively choosing and, and you can find a lot of this stuff also on the FAA's FOIA reading room website. And that only came out based upon us calling them out on those emails. And it's really interesting in the interest of transparency, we're putting this out there. Like, Oh really interest of transparency after the comment period is closed. And we got pictures of you with your cookie and a cookie jar. We're like, ah, it's your hand. And it's your cookie jar. We got you. We got you. No, and now they're like, you got us. We'll be transparent. Got us, you know. It kind of seems like that the FAA, you know, who has been like, we want to listen to pilots. We'll listen to all the pilots. Put your comments in there. We'll get to you. It kind of seems like it's all a show. And you know, okay. I, I remember one one year at the FAA symposium, uh, and I don't have a recording of this, so I couldn't prove it. But I remember Jay Merkel saying in a circle of people that I was there too that yeah, we tell drone pilots that we we really care about uh, their their thoughts and their comments. But when most of these Best Buy pilots are 
reaching out to us with rude language, we really don't care what they say. And I mean, that ideology and mentality is clear as glass in what they release, what they didn't release. And then when they got their hand caught in the cookie jar, were forced to release, which is uh, frankly, I think, very telling as far as what the FAA thinks about drone pilots. A lot of weirdness to that whole situation, too, because then after that comes out, um, look at look at the contract that they disclosed with AirMap. And you're like, you look at the last page of it with the, the signatures. Okay, the dates are all gone on the ones they disclosed, but the ones we have all have the contract, uh, the, the the signatures and the um, the dates. Why are the dates gone? And and so during this whole thing was going on, it was uh, really I think somebody was a good. I knew somebody was going to be like, dude, like you're making it up. Which is why we obtained um, more documents from the FAA, actually certifying that our documents were true. So it's not only uh-huh. we got them, we have documents saying these are certified and true copies of that, which is what we put in a, it's addendum B or C. We put a screenshot of that. So it's like, I got FAA saying the FAA's document is accurate. And to further completely put all of the people that are calling us like conspiracy theorists out of just blowing them out of water. All of this is now on the FAA's own website under that FOIA reading room, completely like vindicating us that we were right all along because it's on their website. I didn't hack it. I mean, unless I'm really good. Um, and then if I, you know, I am, uh, yeah, you probably should side with us because I'll hack you. Anyways, but I'm trying. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, what I will say is, you know what, it gives me a lot of hope for democracy that we're able to really understand what is going on. And we are able to prove what has been speculative in the drone industry for years. And we are able to prove that uh, they're like, hey, here's the show. Look over here what's going on in our right hand. But uh, everything that we're doing that's important is in our left hand. Yeah, there, 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 there were. <laughs> we ran out of room on a lot of things, but here's here's a couple things we didn't we didn't get really into, but I could use because we're never going to use them again because it had to do with the economic impact analysis. But like the FAA hit a lot of stuff in the economic impact analysis. Um, so for example, they're 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 overestimating the uh, retirement aircraft due to just people like replacing them every three years as opposed to what people were saying every six years. So. If that's the case, then the FAA intentionally underestimated the regulatory costs because they overestimated the every three-year retirement, right? So, because they're basically saying a lot of people would be like, I got to get a new drone anyway. I'm going to buy a standard ID drone. That's good, right? If it's actually people are keeping their drones for six years, then a really large chunk of people are having to replace all the drones because of regulatory obsolescence, right? Regulatory costs were way higher. So they underestimated certain things. Or I think I misspoke when I spoke. It's they over they underestimated their their uh, the regulatory burdens. In reality, they are far higher. So that's one example right there. There was another example of uh, just a really messed up one. The AMA one was just like, what the crud? Um, yeah. Okay, so so Chad, so FAA is like, okay. AMA, you're a CBO. We're going to run some estimates on this. It's uh, We're going to say 64, where was it? 20, 2,400 um, flying sites. And we're going to run the numbers off of that based upon AMA's website. And they cite the little site. Okay. Then Chad, uh, I think it was Chad Bajot. He's he's uh, executive director over at AMA. He's like, nah, we actually do it like 6,400. And so then the FAA ignores that number 
from executive leadership of AMA and instead does not go with 2,400 from their original. They go with 2,200. They like cherry pick the lower number somewhere off of the AMA's website. But just mm-hmm. like, they, if they would have just kept it at 2,400 and ignored at 2,400, you're like, okay, you're, you're like an arrogant jerk, but uh, now you're just being like a jerky jerk and just going and cherry picking like lower numbers. Just like, oh, we missed it. It's a lower number. Oh, throw it in there, guys. And so they went with 2,200. So regulatory burdens, way lower. You had an example of where they uh, took, they went to a French uh, manufacturer's website that had like, they were selling uh, remote identification modules, like receivers and transmitters and stuff. And they cherry picked this one off of there. It was like, it was like 50 bucks or something like it basically converted for euros. And they said that was the, uh, the, the, the regulatory costs. Now I understand for purposes of like standard ID, you take that hardware and you kind of like would integrate it into the, the, the manufacturing that could be maybe maybe work. However, the FAA updated everything with broadcast module ID. And so what they should have done is with the economic impact analysis, should have done it where they had a completely self-contained unit. The completely self-contained units on that same exact website were for like 150 euros on up. And so you realize if that's the case, uh, the regulatory burdens on the FPD community and a lot of others are far greater than what the FAA estimated. And they were cherry picking stuff. So you have you have just numerous examples of where data was intentionally done in certain ways so as to minimize regulatory burdens or overestimate regulatory benefits. And so it all looked nice. Uh, we ran out of room on that stuff, so we didn't get into all of that. But there's a lot of there was a lot. There's so many facts. There were so many things in this case. It's like, what? It's, it's insane. Well, you bring up a couple of really important points I want to hit on really fast because you talked about conspiracy theorists and how you have enough data and facts and evidence here to crush them. And I know that there are a lot of people that are in Facebook groups that pretty much take what the FAA says and correct people and shut them up and say, no, 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 remote ID is not this. No, 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 the FAA did not do this. And they utilize a lot of these cherry-picked facts that you're talking about. A lot of these, you know, Facebook group administrators, you people know who I'm talking about. You know, the fact that, you know, you have... you know, people who are literally going to bat for the FAA and silencing and censoring people asking questions, and yet they're utilizing facts that are not true, that were cherry picked, that were utilized by FAA. Um, And then, so that's just one thing that I wanted to say, because there's been so much misinformation in a lot of the Facebook groups, but go ahead. I've got one more point about how the FAA would enforce these manufacturer provisions, but go ahead. Yeah. If anybody's getting censored by if comments are getting deleted, I would highly suggest someone should, I would love to hear your story. Here's why. Um, in the, I don't know, if, I'm still trying to figure out the final reasoning behind this, but in the uh, YouTube video from FA doing the remote identification, you know, Q&A thing with Daniel Corbett and, uh, and everything, well, in the comment section, I went there and I published, hey, if you want to see the other side of the story, go, you know, I put a Dropbox link in to the Race Day Quads, uh, the brief. I said, you can read the other side of the story. I hit comment. Okay, this isn't real-time chat. This is just the comments, okay? Come back so many hours later, it's gone. And I'm like, man, I, I okay, maybe internet, I don't know, whatever. Did it a second time. Um, gone. I was like, you know what? This is getting weird. Uh, so I did it a third time. Different link now, not Dropbox, different link to Race Day Quads website. 
gone. I, I published, I, I did three comments regarding this, this, this case on underneath there. And they all disappeared. The fourth one is still up there right now. So if anybody ever has any issues with stuff disappearing, I, I would love to hear your story. I think there's definitely many examples, but a lot of my point was, is that you've got a lot of people who are on the DAC that are in these Facebook groups that are literally just spitting false information from cherry picked data. It was kind of my point. And I'm deeply concerned that during an FAA webinar or interview that they're deleting this type of factual information as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it just goes to show the importance of understanding censorship as a whole. Um, because, uh, you know, if you're only being shown one side of the fence, you're never going to know what it looks like in the other yard. That said, John, I got one last question for you. It's been a very long show, very complex. Greatly appreciate having both of you on. But in regards to the enforcement of remote ID, you know, they talk about manufacturers would have to, uh, you know, implement this broadcast module of which the protocol, if I understand it, has not been released yet. And then we, you know, we bring in uh, Tyler and your cohort of FPV pilots who would have to have some way of uh, utilizing a broadcast module as well. Since drones are not certified aircraft, how would the FAA act? actually enforce having a broadcast module built into a drone or added to like say an FPV drone? Well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. Are you, are you talking about the enforceability of that? Well, or? so, so here's, here's my point. Um, how would the FAA enforce drone manufacturers to add a broadcast module if they are not in fact certified aircraft? There's no airworthiness certificate. There's no nothing. I mean, we just did a story about how uh, Steve Dixon kind of threw it under the bus in his last speech at AUVSI saying that they are updating airworthiness certificates. And for me, it was foreshadowing that they're going to have airworthiness certificates for drones because it would be the only way they could actually enforce toy manufacturers to build something on their aircraft. Yeah. Um, so originally in the NPRM, that was kind of understood that they were going to try to like, you, you couldn't even like sell. There, there, was, a, there was a lot of Regulatory uh, burdens on the manufacturer in regards to manufacturing these aircraft. The FAA backed away that from that in the final rule. The main focus is now on the operator to have that mm -hmm. aircraft that is uh, either a BMID and it has and, and it's it's it has all the paperwork and everything. And so you can't really be selling uh, these things. That's where it's going to get into the problem if. There's some issues there, but th I don't know how much they're going to put a lot of effort onto the manufacturers immediately as they can just start popping uh, the uh, remote pilots and mm -hmm. start going after them for, for not flying in accord with uh, Part 89 and all these things. Um, so the FAA did, did argue that. I, I that We didn't get into all of those arguments and everything because in – there, there, those, there's some interesting arguments there just in regards to the FAA being able to try to regulate the manufacturing of yeah. unmanned aircraft. And, and so we, we, but we didn't get into that in the, the case. We try to keep it as, as simple as possible with the, the constitutional violations, the statutory violations 
And I, I what the big problem here though is what I think needs to be really communicated is regardless of whatever your position is on remote identification. And I think that we can all have differences on how you think uh, for efficacy purposes. You're like, I think it could be more effective if we did it this way or this way, right? It doesn't really matter those, those different methods uh, to achieve some level of efficacy of stopping either criminals, clueless, careless, however you want to categorize this group of people you're trying to stop, okay? From a business standpoint, um, this is really bad from, from, from why aren't the trade groups and uh, organizations and manufacturers all upset at this? Because th- this causes lots of discontinuity. How do you plan for the future when this, this lawsuit's pending, right? Are you going to put how many thousands of dollars into research and development to go for something that has a potential of being uh, struck down by a court? and then sent back. And then we might not see the next NPRM for maybe a year and a half. So regardless of whatever you think on remote identification, and I think this would be a good takeaway point to communicate with everyone, is that we should all be for one, I mean, for the rule of law, because I mean, that's the right thing to do. But secondly, the rule of law is also uh, very good for business. Trying to color outside the lines is bad for business. It's bad for everybody because it's, it's making everything extremely unpredictable when you make highly suspect questionable law and then businesses have to make decisions. People don't purchase drones because of this. People don't do training because of this. People don't do things because of that. And what happens if it goes the opposite? They bet one way and it goes the opposite, right? You lose a lot of uh, money. So from just a, from a, you know, this is just bad business to, to do ex parte, to allow the FAA to do shady stuff. Why everybody's losing money that was somehow involved in all this that didn't start calling the FAA out next time? Why don't we start calling the FAA out and start trying to publicly stop them? Stop this. This is bad for the United States. Uh, we don't need to have the you know, it's like Scrabble or something every couple of years. Like, no lawsuit happens. Like, why don't you do it right? Because if you do it right, there, there really isn't a lawsuit, it doesn't really happen. Because everyone's like, that's, that's, uh, you're not going to win. And you know what happens? The cases don't get filed and it goes nowhere. And this, so that's, that's a really important point. This isn't an efficacy, which is the better way to do it. 100% of Americans should be agreeing that you need to follow the rule of law, right? That, and it's good and for business. Constitution. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, and so uh, um, the businesses that were involved in this, why weren't they, why aren't the trade groups saying like, this is bad for all of our constituents. All of our constituents are waiting around. This is holding the drone industry back, right? Uh, they don't understand it, John. They just don't, right. they don't understand it. I mean, I, you know, it, it's amazing how, how there's so many groups out there that say these, they do these wonderful, grandiose things. And I mean, you just, uh, you just very eloquently explained how they can, it's easy to prove that they really don't know what they're talking about and they don't really understand what they're pushing because I understand what you're saying that we should all want to follow the rule of law as far as like as long as we follow the systems of laws that we've already had in place and we you kind of go within those systems then it makes business more predictable it makes industries grow more people can fly because there's new development of cool little micro drones that Tyler's kid that may or may not exist can go out and fly in his backyard you know so uh so i mean it makes a lot of sense to me john and i mean i i really appreciate having both of you on the show and 
I really appreciate both of you explaining this because I think also to a previous point with the all the arguments that you guys made that would essentially strike down remote ID and thus we wouldn't have to worry about issues like aircraft certificates or the FAA going around that and putting the responsibility on the pilot. And there's just so much here that the, the the uh, ripple effect of remote ID is so large that if it did go into place as is, it would be, uh, you know, it's an extreme breach of privacy, that it would hurt the industry, that it would literally, uh, you know, ruin America's culpability or capability of producing an industry of science and technology and supporting that with kids who are intrinsically motivated to go into those industries, you know? safety issue we in one of the one of the uh, arguments we made was that the fa ignored the safety issues raised by people who were attacked by flying drones and so now you're a sitting duck and everybody with a phone can now figure out where you are i can now rob you take your drones uh, do whatever i want or just uh, shoot them out um and so they're this exposing people to actual real world attacks. And we actually didn't just like pose hypotheticals. We actually cited, I mean, we got one quote from a commenter specifically explaining how that individual was attacked. And it wasn't, if it wasn't for the police officer, right, you usually get, keep getting beaten up. And that's a safety issue because it's hard to fly a drone when you're getting attacked. Yeah. I mean, you understand that's why they have those like cockpit doors to keep the bad guys from getting in the cockpits. And for some reason, you guys want to like have all the remote, you know, the remote ID guys. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like we're sitting ducks now, guys. You do realize this is an issue. Um, they they ignored that. And then in the reasoning, it was a it was just crazy in the response because they said that there's laws against that. And you're like, and then community outreach is a little bit better to respond to that. And you're like, okay, let me get this straight. The same laws you're citing as the laws that like against that, you can't do that, are the same exact laws that were in effect at the same exact time that individual was punched, okay? So please explain to me how in the future they're gonna somehow have a better effect than they did with that guy. Cause nothing changed, That that's the same law, okay? Uh, additionally, um, the community outreach. Who's gonna do the community outreach, the FAA? Is the FAA going to reach out to everybody? Where's the bu- the the funding, the budget for that? Uh, and and and, and the um, messaging as well. And then who who wants to be the guy going knocking on those doors to the guy that's uh, punching people and shooting down drones? I mean, I'm, I don't want to be that guy. That's a woo, that's a that's a fun. Right? That that's not the type of community outreach you're going to do. You're going to do the the typical FAA um, type of stuff where people that are shooting drones down and attacking drone flyers. The problem not probably not going to those things. So you look at it and it was like it was a tip of the hat at the problem. Like, yeah, I see a problem, but you know what? There's laws against that. That I know they didn't work before, but I'm gonna say there's laws against that and uh community outreach, whatever that means. Community outreach. Hey, well, you've got a call? Don't worry. It's got you know, you need to change your oil. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, rich. Well, you are taxes. Taxes get into community. They're like, what does that mean? You just said a word. What does that mean? Like, yeah. 
Well, and I, I think, you know, the issue of drone pilots getting attacked and shot at and whatnot, this was another issue that I actually raised uh, with a DOJ scientist at the FAA symposium that, look, we know of almost two dozen cases of drone pilots literally being fired at because people thought that they were flying their drones doing something nefarious when, uh, meanwhile, they're trying to inspect the damn power lines to make sure that your, your house doesn't burn down and you still get power. Uh, so yeah, it's a very big issue. And and it just goes to show where the, the FAA's heart or lack thereof uh, is. Um, but to wrap yeah. up the show. Yeah, I got an interesting point. I know of at least one investigator, <laughs> the, the FAA, and uh, um, who was it? No, I have some stuff on my computer. They went after, they, they investigated it. But they they actually just deferred to the state to prosecute the guy. I mean, so, but they, they look into shooting down drones sometimes. So it does happen. At least I found one of it like happening in the wild um, where FAA and everybody was was looking into it. Um, So I'm just flagging that trip. There's another at least one data point, but that's it. We're going to have to have you come back on the show because shooting down a drone is definitely a direct violation of 18 USC 32 about, you know, damaging aircraft. But who am I? I am no legal expert, nor do I pretend to be one, John. That's why we have you here uh, on the show. But... uh, (laughs) And you know, go those like mannequins from like the <laughs> and him like sit out there, and you'd be like the Unabomber with some camo in the corner, you know, with the hoodie on flying, and then they'll attack that, and you're like, ha, ha, ha. so uh, yeah, risk it, we have different risk assessments being drone pilots, but oh, no, yeah. you get the phone calls where people, yeah, people get, I mean, legitimate issues with like dogs sipped on them, and uh, you know, and then it, it's interesting when the FAA just completely like does not really like care about that, and you're just yeah. kind of like. Wow, you I mean, you you guys really don't seem to uh, listen or care. And then when you get on YouTube and say we listen on that that thing with Kevin and everybody, you just kind of go like, oh, my gosh, really? Yeah, not really listening. So you didn't you doesn't sound like it. No, or the proof is definitely not in the pudding. That is for sure. Uh, Well, John and Tyler, thank you for coming on the show. Um, And for everyone listening, I hope that you want to support the efforts of John and Tyler, which we're going to post the link to their site. The GoFundMe is gofundme.com forward slash F as in Foxtrot forward slash save FPV, but we will have that link. Um, And John, thank you very much for explaining these very deep rooted legal issues that I mean, showcase that there are constitutional uh, violations at hand with remote ID and proving how remote ID can really uh, inhibit the industry's growth as a whole. Greatly appreciate you, sir. Thank you for having us. Definitely. And Tyler, my friend, I don't know if you have a kid or not, but uh, they were definitely used as an example for hypothetical legal issues. So thank you. <laughs> oh, man. Well, by the time uh, by the time this case is settled, maybe, maybe I will. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully. Uh, and, and John, that brings up actually my actual last question. Uh, we're supposed to kind of get through this case by spring of 22. Is that right? That. Uh, it could potentially happen. So where we are right now is that the Department of Justice uh, working with the FAA has to respond to us. I think by it was October the 3rd or 4th. And then we're, we have to respond back. It's October the 23rd, I think it is, is when our uh, time frame is. And then we'll have oral arguments scheduled uh, in D.C. and either in D.C. or on Zoom, um, depending upon how COVID goes. And then that'll be for available for everybody to listen to. Um, those are all recorded and everybody can listen to them. Then the court will most likely rule 
most likely sometime in uh like i would say spring early spring maybe ish 22 um so that's kind of where we at we are on this whole situation uh, it does take long unfortunately which is why i think people need to be making that point to the fa that this really sets the industry back a really really long period of time because they colored outside the line the laws were available they had general counsels you know people they had these the fa attorneys were all over this why did Catherine inman not kind of like do something when she disclosed that a docket uh, statement regarding the FBI. Okay. Why is it that there was a member of the general counsel's office in the meeting minutes as recorded by the FAA at the first cohort meeting? And they were aware of ex parte, com- you know, conversations and stuff. Why was that going on? Right. There, there's a lot of things where the, and not to mention, do you know how many attorneys from the general counsel's office were on the FAA remote identification rulemaking team? I do not. There were two. So there there were a lot of, this isn't like a FAA was just ignorant. They're just big feds and they couldn't cut it in the real world and they're stupid. It's like, there were like attorneys like all over the place there. And what was going on? Why wasn't there like, guys, we need to like follow the rule of law here. We need to be a little bit more transparent. We need to like put stuff on the record and over disclose and be transparent. Um, so uh, yeah. And we, we have all that information and it's like, it's just kind of like eyebrow raising. You're like, what was going on? Two attorneys on the remote identification rulemaking team, one attorney, well, at least one member from the general counsel's office at the remote identification cohort meeting, the first one, meeting privately during the comment period uh, of the NPRM. Why? Yeah, very, yeah, it's very good question. I mean, definitely ignorance is not bliss in this case. Uh, but uh, man, it just goes to show, uh, I will just say this for all pilots, John and Tyler, we're very grateful for you for actually having the, the cojones to step up and stick your neck out there and do, uh, and, and you know, really do what's right and showcase the real issues. Because John, in response to, you know, why would they do this? It's, for me, it's clear as glass because remote ID is about security. And it, it's not really about empowering the drone industry. It's not really about empowering UTM. It's about the fact that everyone knows the FAA is struggling to enforce against drone pilots. They need some autonomous means, and it would provide federal, state, and local governments with a way to implement and you know do it in the past looking forward too implement fines on pilots and create revenue. This is about quote unquote, the guise of safety and revenue. You know, I know John that you said that you like to do investigations. What's one of the fundamental rules about investigations? You got to follow the money. And you look at all these ex parte issues with these, you know, industry quote unquote advocates that are not advocates that are, you know, in these backdoor meetings with the FAA discussing remote ID. And then they say, oh yeah, that has absolutely nothing to do and is unrelated. And that's why we didn't put it on the docket. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. Especially after we call them out on it. And yeah. so it's, yeah, there was an effort there to, they, they pick certain companies as part of their remote identification rulemaking um, uh, Skyward with the own, and then you had Skyward owned by Verizon, T-Mobile, Airbus, Amazon, I believe. And, um, I'm trying to remember the rest of them. They open skies, I think it was, or there, so there was a, yeah, they had, there was eight companies in total. And so there, there's some aspect to where they could potentially benefit either directly as a unmanned aircraft service supplier collecting fees, or maybe after, after, um, a cellular data carrier fees, right. Um, right. If you're doing network ID, so, 
there were there were some issues there. Um, but you know, just setting that aside, there's kind of like a, just a just the transparency issue. How many things that could have been done correctly to maybe like be a little bit more open? Why didn't they treat that? Why did they do it as a secret meeting? I mean, what the remote identification arc? Let's just talk about that, right? Why was it an arc and not an ARAC? ARACs are open to the public. ARCs are not. Right? Why? Why didn't they throw that all? Like, why? Why didn't they follow um, what the uh, FAA uh, was it Extension Safety and Security Act of uh, two thousand and uh, was it seventeen? The fast it, it section. Yeah, I mean, it specifically said was it two two o two that FAA needed to talk to NIST and RTCA in convening these stakeholder groups, but. There's no evidence whatsoever that NIST was involved in any way whatsoever. RTCA, what what did they have in any say in that? So there was a complete just against the um, the what what Congress said explicitly to the FAA. This is how you're going to do it. And what's interesting also to note is there seems to be a false uh, misunderstanding by the community is they think that 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 was Congress actually explicitly telling the FAA to create remote identification regulations because when we read the bottom part of 2202 it says for the faa to issue regulations or guidance guidance is not regulations it's like a really important point it was like hey guys look into it do we need to do regulations or just like say some advisory circular stuff and that's good to go right is that good and then it kind of comes out as like no remote id you know it's used as like a justification that it was congressional intent to like uh, back this remote identification regulation creation. It's like not, just read the language. Doesn't anybody read the language? It's like, they, that's actually really interesting. Read how like the FA paraphrases stuff a lot. It's always like interesting. Cause you're like, ah, doesn't exactly say that, you know, but. Yeah, yeah, so many, so many good points. So many good points. John, I feel like uh, we could have you on the show for another eight hours to go through every single legal issue that's going on here. And I mean that as a compliment, my friend. So you really know your stuff. You really do. Um, Tyler, let me ask you this. Uh, If you could ask uh, our audience for help other than donating, I know that you're about $28,000 short of your goal in uh, in fundraising because federal lawsuits are expensive if i understand it correctly as i will be probably getting in one here soon myself uh but that said um <laughs> yeah that said how can uh, drone pilots help support you guys tyler yeah absolutely so i mean first one obviously is is uh donating right i mean we are not uh uh the for for better or worse we are the only show in town when it comes to challenging uh, remote ID and, and highlighting uh, this stuff on a, on a, on a, you know, actual court uh, level. So, you know, we're no DGI and we're not Amazon and we're not Verizon. Uh, this is, I'm, I'm the sole owner of race a quads and, and uh, you know, the primary financer of all this. So every single dollar that, um, that, that is donated significantly helps us hire uh, people like John and Kathy and and our team of of uh, people because this really did take a huge uh, uh, team of both uh, uh, counsel and people filing FOIAs and and kind of giving their two cents. So um, you know this has been a community backed grassroots uh, from the ground up uh, kind of uh, kind of effort. So um, yeah, I mean do- donating is absolutely huge, but if you can't donate, uh, then that's totally okay. Just 
try and educate those uh, around you or, or that you see in the hobby about, hey, what is what is actually going on here? Um, what are some things that, that we brought to light? And if you've made it this far into the video, uh, you know, you are a major uh, key person in helping uh, educate the community on that. Um, and that you now know not more than 99.9% of, uh, you know, all the RC enthusiasts out there. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you could share this show, which it kind of explains uh, why yeah. remote ID hurts the industry, why it hurts the pilots, why it hurts your privacy, uh, why it was built for mass surveillance. I mean, it is it is clear as glass. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, everyone, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, hopefully you like the show. Leave a comment. Let us know what you thought. And uh, if you love flying drones, you love taking flight, give this show a share. If you cannot afford uh, to support them financially in their quest to fight this. Maybe someone who sees your share would, but that's going to do it for us today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again so much for joining us. This is Ask Dronio. We believe that videos, images, words, and sounds have the absolute power to inform, inspire, and entertain. We reject indecision, confusion, and vanity, for they work against the community. We are united under the virtues of safety and knowledge. We are a training community of learners and teachers who encourage and energize each other to achieve greatness. We are pilots, videographers, photographers, freelancers, business owners, enthusiasts, experts, and apprentices. We are creators. We are the Drone Youth.